Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory for our final Stewart Public Evening Lecture of the fall 2014 semester. And we welcome those of you who are joining us on the World Wide Web via iTunes U or streaming at www.as.arizona.edu. It is a cloudy night tonight in Tucson, Arizona, so unfortunately the telescope will not be open for public viewing. However, at the conclusion of tonight's lecture, we will have a book signing with our speaker tonight. It will be in the main lobby of Stewart Observatory where you can purchase some of his titles. Dr. Levy will be happy to sign them for you, and I have arranged for refreshments. There should be punch and cookies as well to end up, yes. Sorry for those of you aren't listening on the internet, no cookies for you. Um, if there are students here tonight for an assignment, I am the person who will validate your assignment. I shall do it down at this table at the conclusion of the question and answer period. Finally, I would like to point out our schedule for next spring, 2015. We have an abbreviated schedule. We'll take a break for the holidays, and we'll see you again on January the 12th, where I'm going to introduce you to another one of our new professors here at Stewart Observatory, Professor Daniel Stark, who will talk about a cosmological topic, searching for cosmic dawn. Then we take a break, starting on January 26th, for seven weeks in a row, every Monday night at 7 o'clock. They start earlier than we do. 7 o'clock, the College of Science in Centennial Hall will have a lecture series on astrobiology, life in the universe. And we invite you to uh, visit those lectures seven weeks in a row, and then we'll start back again with Gertina Besla on March the 23rd. We'll hear about the crimes of Galileo on April the 6th. And again, for April 20th, I'm working on Mark Sykes to come and talk about the Dawn mission when it, gets, it should have gotten to series by then, and we should have some nice pictures. Okay. <clears throat> we are very, very happy and lucky tonight to have one of our local astronomy celebrities here to talk to us. David Levy, who, uh, he tells me the uh, uh, correct count is 23. He has either um, discovered or co-discovered 23 comets. And this is something you're probably never going to see again because nowadays with automated telescope arrays and cameras and then computer programs to automatically look at different epochs of, of uh, images, a computer can probably find a comet a lot faster and more efficiently and actually at fainter magnitudes than a human being can. So. I am doubtful whether there'll be another human being that will match David's record. Uh, David uh, has also been heavily involved in public outreach and astronomy education. He was at one time an associate editor for both astronomy and sky and telescope magazines. He won an Emmy Award for a documentary that he did back in the 90s. Uh, he also had a, an internet radio show, Let's Talk Stars, for many years. And I think he told me today that that may be revived soon on Facebook. So that's exciting. Uh, his uh, PhD is from Hebrew University in English Literature. And he invited, well, hey, 
there's a lot of astronomy in uh, Renaissance uh, in, uh, English literature, especially Shakespeare, and that may be the subject of a future lecture. But for now, I'd like to call upon Dr. David Levy to give us a presentation, uh, A Night Watchman's Journey. Well, thank you very, very much. It is really a pleasure to be here. And uh, while I was listening to the introduction, and thank you for bringing me up to date on what I've done throughout my life, uh, Sometimes one forgets when one gets a little older. And um, I'm wondering now if I can... There we are. <coughs> and I think this is the right lighting. Is everyone happy with this lighting? Those of you who didn't sleep too well last night might get a chance, might want to lower it a little bit. But uh, <coughs> otherwise, we should, we should have a nice, pleasant evening together. Um, it's interesting how much has happened. I started com searching for comets on the 17th of December, 1965. So in about six days from now, I will be celebrating the <coughs> 49th year of my comet search, which of course means that a year from now, I will be celebrating the 50th anniversary. And it's kind of interesting uh, as we enter this important year to kind of look back and see how astronomy has changed over the years, and it has changed enormously. If I were to give this talk 50 years ago, I would say, boy, I'm going to start searching for comets, and I'm going to have a good time, and we're going to, we're really going to do well with it, and uh, finding visual comets that are bright enough to be seen. There's no way in heaven on earth that I would do that now. It is virtually impossible to discover a comet visually now. It is not completely impossible because I managed to do one in 2006. Uh, this was a comet that stayed very far away from where most people, where most of the automatic equipment is looking for comets. This was kind of staying close to the sun, and it stayed close to the sun until it got brighter and brighter, and finally became bright enough to be seen and it was the morning of Yom Kippur of 2006. And uh, I thought I would get up. And uh, you know, you're not supposed to do any work on Yom Kippur. But I asked forgiveness because, number one, Yom Kippur is, the, is when we're supposed to be asking for forgiveness. And the other thing is that, uh, and the other thing, and the other thing is that uh, it's also easier to ask for forgiveness than for permission. And so that morning, I got up at about 5 in the morning, or 4.30 or so, and there was Saturn just beginning to come up in the, in, the, in the northeast. And so I moved the telescope just a wee bit north of Saturn, and I started searching with my eye at the eyepiece, and I had the telescope. My glasses were off, and I had my eyepiece, and I looked one field, and another field, and then over, and then Saturn came in to the, to the telescope's field of view, and it, the seeing was so bad that you could barely make out the fact that the planet had rings. But it's the first view of Saturn that I had that season. And it was great. Except right next to it was a fuzzy spot. I ignored it. I continued observing. And I said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold on. 
and moved the telescope back, and there was, uh, was still there. And I thought, well, it's a reflection. And uh, let me try a different telescope. I tried a different kind of a telescope, looked through that and saw the planet and the uh, fuzzy spot next to it. And I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. I know there isn't any galaxy that bright that's supposed to be there. I should take some pictures. I did have a uh, Mead camera that was on and ready to go and just sitting there, not doing anything. And so I took five images, one after the other, of Saturn. Just centered Saturn in the picture and took these pictures of, of it. Brought it back inside after the, the dawn began to come and I looked at those pictures and you could easily see this object moving through the field. Definitely it was a comet. And I was very surprised. I called an acquaintance of mine who had been observing with a large telescope and this guy thinks he knows everything. And, uh, <laughs> and I told him about it and he said, no, no, no. And I said, what do you mean, no, no, no? And he said, you found the moon Titan, Saturn's moon Titan. And for about a tenth of a second, I could feel my heart sink. And then I thought, Levy, you've been in the business a little longer than that. And I said, I think I would know Saturn's moon Titan when I saw it. <coughs> this is not a moon of Saturn. And uh, tail between his legs, he said, uh, you're right, it's not. So I sent the report. And that day, we went to the synagogue that afternoon. And uh, when, I got back, when we got back that night, I checked my email. And it turned out there was a message from the Central Bureau for Astronomical Tele Telegrams saying that the object that I had reported has been confirmed as a comet by an observer in England. And uh, it is a comet. We will announce it tomorrow morning. <coughs> and so that was number 20 two of the comets that I've discovered. And uh, most, a lot of them have been discovered visually through a 16-inch telescope that I have. And others have been found working with Jean and Carolyn Shoemaker uh, photographically with the 18-inch camera at Palomar Observatory. And the most recent one, one, was discovered electronically with one of the telescopes and cameras that we have in our backyard. But I do think that, that I'm still in doing comets <clears throat> with very low probability that I shall ever find another one. So why don't I give up? I don't give up because I'm not in the business to find comets so much. The real excitement, if all I wanted to do was to find comets, I would have given up years ago. I would have given up before I found my first one. It was a dreadful... It would be a dreadful thing to do. Those of you who subscribed to Sky and Telescope for a number of years might have remember editor Leif Robinson's editorial in it once when he said, I don't have a whole lot of regard for comet searchers. Says, searching for many, many hundreds of hours for just a few minutes of glory to discover one comet doesn't seem like a very good deal to me. And uh, so if you're searching for comets with the idea that you might actually find one, don't. <coughs> it's the advice that I don't think I would have given when I started and certainly would not give now. I think the best advice actually comes from legendary comet discoverer Minoru Honda. And he spoke to a young person who wanted to find a comet. That young person's name was Kaoru Ikea. 
from Japan. And we all know that he has discovered several very good comets. In fact, the brightest comet of the 20th century was Ekeaseki. And he said, if you want to discover a comet, I will tell you not to do it because you could go your entire life without finding anything. So don't do it. If, however, you enjoy looking at the sky, just watching the sky, moving your telescope back and forth to see what the sky has to offer from night to night, I would suggest that you actually begin a comet search because while you are enjoying the sky, it is not impossible that you will discover a comet someday. <clears throat> So that's the reason that I keep on doing it. I love the search. It is why I'm still in the business, and it's why I still love going around with a with telescope and searching for comets. <clears throat> I have here a photograph that was taken. There are a number of little kids in this picture, and there's a geeky one right over there uh, who is uh, kind of, kind of uh, shy. <clears throat> not really athletic and kind of wanting to go home and very homesick, that's me. <clears throat> and that was just around the time I first became interested in the night sky, quite by accident. I didn't become interested in the night sky, no. The night sky became interested in me. And it was that night that we were watching the 4th of July fireworks. <clears throat> I didn't know what 4th of July was. I'm from Canada. I didn't know from Independence Day in the United States. So I was there and uh, walking. They, of course, being in the youngest group, they dismissed us early. And I went with the rest of the children back to our cabin. And as we were going up, I was looking up at the darkening sky, and I saw a shooting star. Very, very simple, very easy, and very nice to see. And it was as simple as that. I looked at the other kids and I said, did any of you see that shooting star just now? And they said, no. And the idea came into my head, is it possible that I am the only one in the world that saw that particular shooting star? Is it possible that nobody else saw it? <clears throat> is it possible that it was kind of a little subliminal message to me that this is what I should be doing? Anyway, I was only eight at the time. I didn't know what to do with subliminal messages, so I just took, took, took that as information and kind of meandered back. I hated that camp. Why my, parents, why my parents made me go there for three whole summers, I don't know. But there was so much going on then when my life was beginning. <clears throat> my real interest in astronomy took place a few years later. All kinds of things were happening. It was very hard to point out one specific thing that caused my interest to get as strong as it was. And so suddenly, during the summer of 1960, one of them was the fact that there, were, there was a candidate for president of the United States that summer who interested me quite a bit. That was John F. Kennedy. He was running on the Democratic ticket and... Uh, he, one of the things that he, that really got him the, the presidency was he was talking about the missile gap between the United States and the, so, the then Soviet Union. And 
I was thinking of missiles and rockets, and uh, with a number of friends, we were thinking that rockets and missiles can be used not just as weapons. They can be used to propel humanity into space. And uh, Kennedy became president, and uh, <clears throat> I have another talk that I give, and I really shouldn't be stealing any material from that talk, talk right now, but I will just a little bit. Well, how do we define poetry? Is poetry something like Alfred Tennyson that is just something that is um, easily seen and done and you take a textbook with dusty textbook and read something that was written 400 years ago or, or, or something like that? <clears throat> or is it possible that poetry can be written by anyone here, any of us? Someone who doesn't even know that she or he is a poet. I offer this photograph here that was shown to me by a friend of mine some time ago. That's Werner von Braun. And look what he's standing next to. Sitting on a big tractor trailer is the tail end of a Saturn V rocket, the biggest rocket that he designed. I'm showing you this picture because I want you to see the, the size of the engines. You can set up housekeeping in those engines. They are huge. They are absolutely gigantic. Nothing has been built bigger than that or as big as that since then. Isn't that something? And it's those engines that sent humanity on its first trip to the moon. And I would like to suggest that of all the people that we know who aren't remembered as poets, one of them did write a speech that is now considered as poetry. And that was President Kennedy. And it actually takes, takes place over two different speeches. One is a speech that he gave to the Congress in May of 1961. And the other is a year later when he was giving a lecture at Rice University. And I'd just like you to listen to, uh, to, the, to the relevant portions of these particular speeches. should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard, because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. It is extraordinary to, to imagine what happened, although that really doesn't end the poem. I think in order to end it, we have to include another person's words, Neil Armstrong, who landed on the moon. He was the first person to, land, to walk on the moon. And the first words he said were, that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. And those three little segments form what I would call a great 20th century poem 
signifying one of the greatest things humanity has ever done. He didn't care about astronomy. In fact, he said he's not interested in that. He didn't care. He, all he cared about was beating the Soviets. It was a political decision only. But what do we remember now about that? We remember that for one brief moment, we looked into the sky and we sent people to the moon. We actually been there. Twelve people have walked on the moon. And I, I, it, it, it gives me the shivers just to think about it, that these twelve people have walked to the moon. <clears throat> it's just an incredible feeling. <clears throat> Even though I'm excited about comets, and the main portion of this presentation will be about comets, my favorite thing in astronomy are the, is the thing that I don't have to use a telescope at all to do. Looking up at the moon, which you all, you, you've all seen the moon, you just go outside and look, don't need a telescope, don't even need binoculars. And the other thing is looking at shooting stars or meteors. We're going to get both this week. We have the moon that's rising a little bit later each night, and we have the Geminid meteor shower that will be coming up next week, and it is the best meteor shower of the year. I suggest very strongly that on the night of the 13th of December, around 10 o'clock at night, you go outside, put on a warm coat, go outside for an hour or so, and see how many meteors or shooting stars you see. It's very exciting. They should be bright, slow-moving, just beautiful. <clears throat> and uh, it's just an, one of the many things we can do looking up at the sky. And the other thing, of course, is the moon. The, I, I remember as an undergraduate student then in English literature um, at Acadia University, I remember one night, it was a, kind of a foggy night, there was a bright moon in the sky, but I didn't really even know what phase it was. I decided to take a little lonely walk to the east of the town that I was living in. And uh, I took a little cassette player, put in a cassette, didn't even know what it was. And I walked down the street and uh, turned, turned left, crossed a set of railroad tracks, turned right, and started walking along a low mound, mounded hill. And then I pressed, I pressed the playback button on the machine. And I'd like to share with you right now exactly what it was that, um, that I saw. <clears throat> Played to the music that I listened to that night. formed an unbelievable violence, the result of a collision between a Mars-sized planetesimal object colliding with the Earth about four and a half billion years ago. This is a painting done of the moment of collision. About an hour after the collision, 
and the moon is already starting to form and we can see it in this image already formed within a year of the great collision and after that violent birth the moon now orbits the earth in unbelievable peace we know it causes the tides we also know that it and the sun cause eclipses of the sun from 1979, another total from 1999, 20 years later. A total eclipse in Antarctica, two pictures of that, the distant one and the close-up. of the moon than of the sun. They're both equally as fascinating, but I have to admit I have a preference for the total solar eclipses, of which we're going to get one in a few years. some of the people that have walked on the moon. Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong, and some of the other astronauts that have flown in space. This is the launch of Apollo 8 that orbited the moon Christmas 1968. And this is Aldrin about to step on the moon surface Apollo 11. And Michael Collins in the command module taking a picture of Earthrise while in orbit around the moon went with Aldrin and Armstrong, all of us who were alive at the time. All of us who could see Moonrise like this by Vincent van Gogh. Moonrise again by Ansel Adams. full portrait taken by the Galileo space probe as it was on its way away from our system to Jupiter.
so many interesting ways than the sky. And now we, we actually move a little bit further along when my interest in astronomy focused on its current task of searching for comets. I've always loved comets. I've always been interested in them. I don't really know how that part of it started, whether it was comets in literature, whether it was comets in history. But the fact is that comets have had an enormous influence on the... Uh, origin and the evolution of our civilization. I remember that when uh, a lot of us were young, it still wasn't outside the realm of possibility that comets could actually be, om be bad omens. <clears throat> and uh, I would think that we know a little bit more about comets now than we did then, and that we're not really worried about that, although I do call to your attention the fact that in 1997, when the last really great comet was visible in the northern hemisphere, Hale-Bopp, that uh, 37 people committed suicide, believing that they were going to be somehow transported to a spaceship that was following how, uh, comet Hale-Bopp. But my interest kind of went along many ways. I was interested in the science. I was interested in the history. But I think as I give my presentation tonight, I have to think that what really got me going was not so much that decision somehow in the fall of 1965 to begin searching for comets, but something that I discovered years later, as actually pointed out to me, was a poem by the uh, 19th century English poet Gerard Manley Hopkins. And uh, it was called, I Am Like a Slip of Comet. And recently I've looked up on, on the web about comments about this poem, I Am Like a Slip of Comet, and you can get several of them. There are a couple of websites that come up. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry, Wendy. Okay, so I, I was reading about, this, um, about what people thought of this poem, and I found out that most of them hated it. They said, here is this awful piece of drivel that doesn't really talk about anything. The guy knows nothing about poetry, less about astronomy. <clears throat> and then everybody started agreeing with this person. Everybody except me. <clears throat> I was introduced to I Am Like a Slip of Comet by Norman Mackenzie. And I have to share with you that Norman gave a lecture at Queen's University where I got my master's degree a couple of years after I graduated 
and he got to talking about I am like a slip of comet. And he told the audience, he said, I have never in my life encountered anybody who was more enthusiastic and excited, simple excited, about a work of English literature than David Levy was about Hopkins's poem about a comet. And it's true. I was wild about it. And I ended up writing my, the bulk of my master's thesis on what that comet actually meant. To me, it was not just an early poem. Most of Hopkins's poems are illegible and incomprehensible. They are just about the most hard-to-read poems in the language. This one he wrote when he was young. He was still a student at Oxford. And uh, he got away with a lot of things then. But this is more of a traditional poem, and I think it's beautiful, and I would like to share it with you. I am like a slip of comet, scarce worth discovery, in some corner seen bridging the slender difference of two stars. But when she sights the sun, she grows and sizes and spins her skirts out while her central star shakes its cocooning mists. And so she comes to fields of light. Millions of traveling rays pierce her. She hangs upon the flame-cased sun and sucks the light as full as Gideon's fleece. But then her tether calls her. She falls off. And as she dwindles, sheds her smock of gold amidst the sistering planets and then goes out into the cavernous dark. So I go out. My little sweet is done. I have drawn heat from this contagious sun to not ungentle death. Now forth I run. This was, this was the Hopkins Comet poem. It turned out that I came up with fairly good evidence that Hopkins actually was observing Comet Temple Respighi of 1864 that was bright in the northern sky just two weeks before he wrote this poem. And the reason that I think that he was talking about this comet is that there, I found a letter <clears throat> written to the, London, to the Times of London and it said there's this lovely comet that's been found and on Monday next it will be situated so that its head will be very near the star Iota Aurigae, and its tail will stretch across to another star, Beta Tauri, bridging the slender difference of two stars. I was still doing a proposal about doing an MA thesis about Hopkins, and I went to Dr. McKenzie and I told him about this, and he said no. He said, David, you have to realize that an Iota star is much, much fainter than a Beta star. Beta, second brightest star in a constellation. Iota is much, much fainter. It couldn't have been that star. It couldn't have been that particular comet. And uh, at the time, of course, I didn't want to argue with my professor who was going to be my... You know, you don't argue with a, with a thesis supervisor. What he says is gospel, right? <clears throat> but I didn't know any better, so I stood up. I, I sat up in my chair and I said, Sir... He said, yes. And I said, I know those two stars. I see them almost every clear night. Taurus does not have as many stars, bright stars, as Auriga does. So Beta in Taurus is actually just a little bit brighter than Iota in Auriga. He says, are you certain? 
And I said, I'm quite certain. And he said, you got yourself a thesis. <laughs> and I have to tell you that going into the library and studying that poem and studying the, the sky as it appeared in the time of Hopkins was as exciting to me as discovering a comet. I didn't know that yet because I hadn't found any comets. That was going to be later. That was going to be on the... Um, that was actually going to be much later on the <clears throat> 13th of November, 1984. And uh, there was a lot that I had to go to build up to that time. I had to look at some eclipses. I had to decide that I was going to start taking uh, records and writing records of each of my observing sessions. I started, as you can see on this page, with session number one. The session that I recorded last night was session seven, no, 18,000 and something. <clears throat> and I've had some 20, 23 or uh, 20, 23 volumes of my observing log, and you can get them all on the website of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. They're all there online, the whole kit and caboodle. <clears throat> I've had little projects like this, recording the position of where the sun sets every week or so for the period of a year. And you just imagine that we're on a spaceship orbiting the sun quickly with each sunset wondering what surprises the sky might, might bring tonight, what unusual things. And again, the moon. But then there is, um, there is the idea of reading a book. And if there is anything that got me into comet hunting more than anything else, it has to have been Leslie C. Peltier, who was another well-known comet, comet discoverer. He discovered 12 comets between 1925 and 1954. And uh, he wrote a book called Starlight Nights. <clears throat> And in Starlight Nights, these are the sketches that he did for that book. He did them himself. He described a comet. <clears throat> he described the comets that he had seen. I had watched a dozen comets, hitherto unnamed, slowly creep across the sky as each one scrawls <clears throat> its, <clears throat> scrawled its sweeping flourish in the guestbook of the sun. What poetry that man had with a pen to be able to say something like that. And then finally, as he's late in life, looking out of his observatory, and he sees the Pleiades in the sky, and then he sees the vision of a kitchen window when he, as a young boy, is looking out and looking out at the night sky when he first became interested. I'm getting kind of close to that part in life now where you know, I'm not, I'm not, certainly not as young as I used to be, not, none of us are. But the idea is that, <clears throat> that I'm now beginning to look back upon my life and evaluate it. Did I make the right decisions? And I, th I think I did. I made two decisions in my life that, are, that were perfect. Everything else might have been a screw-up, but these two are the good ones. The first one was that I met, met Wendy and that we got married. 
The second one, which took place earlier, was that I decided to start searching for comets. No one, none of my friends were doing something like that. N nobody was uh, really encouraging me to do that. In fact, I was so shy about it at first that I didn't even want to let my parents or family know about it. It wasn't until years later, close to the time that I finally discovered my first comet, that I finally was able to admit to them that this was my project and that I had hoped to discover someday a new comet. <clears throat> it's possible to see the night sky in the middle of the daytime. And those of us who are on the path of totality for the solar eclipse coming up in 2017 might be able to see this, especially if you look over to the right side. It's like night hitting you very quickly at the, in the middle of the day as a total eclipse of the sun begins to take over the area. I finally discovered my first comet 19 years after I started searching. I remember being told, you're never going to find a comet. You don't know what you're doing. You're not going to find one. Why don't you go and give up? And these are people that are that it was opinions I trusted. My mom, for instance, even after I'd found a few, she would say, don't give up your day job. I didn't have a day job to give up, but she said that. But on the 13th of November, 1984, I went out on a date with a friend of mine. She was at the time in charge of the evening lecture series. It was the same one as this one the Stewart Observatory Public Evening Lectures. It was called at the time Eyes on the Universe. And uh, it was held for, I think, a couple of years. Well, not here, but over at the Flandreau Planetarium across the street. And I liked her very much. And normally, I'm going to try to put it back on again in the hope that uh, it still works. This typically happens. Oh, I could give you stories about how, how the number of times that I have closed the observatory, forgetting to close the telescopes first. <laughs> I don't know if this is going to stay, but we'll try it. <laughs> okay, maybe yeah, a little help here. Put it right here. That's going to stay. It's going to stay. Thank you. <clears throat> and. So we sat down for dinner, and uh, her name was Lonnie Baker. She is living in Tucson now, doing very well, and uh, with, her, with her husband, Todd. And um, so we were having that dinner date, and uh, so she said, so it uh, looks like um, we have a nice, pleasant lecture, and uh, then afterwards uh, you can go home and look for your telescope. But I'm looking at past her outside the window, of the restaurant, I'm noticing that the clouds that have been there all day are beginning to dissipate. And she said a few other things. And she said, David, you're not paying attention. <laughs> I still looked past her out the window at the clearing sky. And she said, David, you're not going to come to the lecture tonight. You're going to go home and set up a telescope and search for comets, aren't you? And uh, 
right away I snapped back to her attention and I said, oh, no, no, you got it all wrong. We're going to finish our dinner and pay for it. Then I'm going to race home and search for comets. <laughs> <laughs> I got home, set up the telescope, and uh, I worked for about an hour, and I found a couple of interesting objects, the cluster in Hercules, Messier 13, another couple of objects. And then I found something in Aquila, a very interesting cluster of stars, next to which was a fuzzy spot. And my first reaction was, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. How come there isn't, how come there aren't hundreds of photographs of this in every Astronomy 101 textbook? How come there aren't any pictures of this? Then I thought, maybe I better do a drawing of this. So I took out a sketch pad, drew the cluster, drew a couple other stars, and drew the fuzzy spot. And I looked back into the telescope eyepiece. I said, Levy, you don't know how to sketch worth a darn. Actually, that's not the words I use, but cleaned up a little bit for tonight. <coughs> the fuzzy spot's a little bit to the north. You've got it in the wrong spot. So I put the new one in, wait a couple minutes, and I looked. Hey, you still don't have it right, you idiot. Still further north. And I started to erase it again. Then I thought, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Everything's happening the way it's supposed to. That fuzzy spot is moving. It's a comet. And I think if I could have physically jumped out of the observatory without being restrained by gravity, I would have done that at that moment. One of the things I thought of was, what is the difference between a failed program that didn't get you anything and a program that has been successful. The difference is simply one field of view. Thousands and thousands of fields of view of the telescope showed everything that was supposed to be there. And finally, one field of view showed something that wasn't. I sent a telegram because this was before the days of internet and email. <coughs> remember those? Does anybody remember sending a telegram? <clears throat> and uh, actually, they wanted you to send it in a code, which they had. I have no idea. I was terrible at math. So I had no idea what this code was. So I just sent the message as quickly and as efficiently as I could to the Central Bureau for Astronomical Telegrams. The, I heard nothing. And the whole next day, I was wondering about it. And then that night, while I was out observing in the telescope again, through the telescope again, the phone rang, and it was Dr. Brian Marsden. And he said, well, looks like you have an, a wild one out there, right? And I said, well, I think so. I'm actually looking at it right now. And he, he said that Michael Rudenko had also found it just an hour or two earlier. And he said, it is confirmed, and so I am going to call it Comet Levy-Rudenko. And just like that, I had a comet after 19 years. The interesting thing about, about the night of the discovery was that after I sent the telegram, I thought of my friend who was at the, um, my friend who was at the uh, planetarium that night, and I thought, oh, yeah, she told me before I left the um, restaurant, I said, well, you better find a comet for me tonight. So I think I better tell her. 
So I called her, and she was just about ready to leave. And she said, did you find a comet for me tonight? And I said, yes. And she laughed. She got a good laugh out of it. And she said, where is it? And I said, it's, it's, it's in uh, Aquila. And he said, how bright is it? And I said, it's about 10th magnitude. And he said, in which direction is it moving? And I said, very slowly towards the north. She stopped laughing. You're serious? I said, of course I'm serious. I'm not going to joke about something that important to you. <laughs> the next day, there was this big article in the Tucson newspaper that, was, that mentioned, I think, somewhere in the third or fourth paragraph that this guy had discovered a comet the night before. But the rest of the article was about my broken dinner date with Lonnie Baker and how I broke it to go out and search for comets that night. That was their story. <laughs> According to this picture, the next one was not that far along coming. A couple of years later, <clears throat> New Year's Day, 1987, five years into the year, five days into the year, I finished a book that I had been writing about variable stars, stars that change in brightness, a passion of mine. I sent that in, all ready to send it in. I had it all in the envelope, ready to go. And it was pouring rain all night. But as I was finished, it must have been about 5 o'clock in the morning, I noticed that the sky was clearing in the east of all places. Took out the telescope, discovered my second comet. And that's this one here. <clears throat> and that was kind of hard. A few months later, I found a third one and then a fourth one. And my fifth one was this guy, which I found on the 20th of May, 1990. And certainly was, uh, certainly was really very exciting because this is not what it looked like when I found it. In fact, it was so faint, you could barely see it, visually, photographically, or anything. But I did manage to catch it. And uh, as the uh, summer went on that year, it got quite a bit brighter, easily visible to the unaided eye. But of all the comets that I've been looking, looking for and looking at and searching for, this is the one that became the most famous. It is not famous for what it was. Shoemaker-Levy 9 was a dull, faint comet. After its discovery on photographic films, I was able to go home and I was able to look through my telescope and actually see the comet. It was very easy to see because it was very close to the planet Jupiter. <clears throat> a couple of months, about, I would say about six months later, the newly rejuvenated Hubble Space Telescope took this photograph of that comet. And this is really the family portrait of the comet now known as Shoemaker-Levy 9 from all the way over there at the far right, all the way over to the left. All of the fragments of this broken up, disrupted comet are there except for the last one. That was an exciting story and, and I think <clears throat> it had been a long time since we had found anything either visually, it was January of, it was March of 1993, March the 23rd, 1993. We had taken images of the sky 
using films that had been damaged by a competitor of ours in the comet searching business. And what, what they had done is they had taken our, at least this is what I think happened, don't have any proof of it, but they, they took the uh, film, the films that were in our film box, and opened it, exposing it to light, finding the, seeing the films inside, saying, oh my goodness, I've just exposed all these unexposed films. I think I better close this box real fast. Making sure it's closed, not quite closed. Let me open it again, kind of clean it up a little. There, now it's closed. And I ain't going to tell anybody I did that. <coughs> so those films were mostly useless, although there were a couple of them that, that weren't too bad. The outsides were, uh, were totally light-struck and not usable. But the middles, because they were underneath other films, were okay. And it was on two of those films that we discovered Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9. <clears throat> the first exciting thing about this comet was that it didn't appear to be in orbit around the sun, or at least not directly. This comet was in orbit around Jupiter. In fact, it had a very interesting orbit around Jupiter, looking a little bit like that over the years. Just all kinds of chaotic motions of that comet, never really settling into a stable orbit around Jupiter. In 1970, in fact, the comet in orbit around Jupiter back then came so close that it almost collided. 1992, it came even closer, so close that the, the Jupiter's gravity split the comet apart into 21 pieces, releasing a lot of dust, thereby brightening the comet, making it able to be discovered on our photographic films that Gene and Carolyn Shoemaker and I took on the night of March the 23rd, 1993. But the really exciting part was that we didn't know at the time of discovery that this would be the final orbit of Shoemaker-Levy 9, and that starting on the 16th of July, 1994, the fragments would begin to collide with Jupiter. I didn't really know <clears throat> really what to expect. In fact, when I first heard about it, that our comet was going to collide with Jupiter, I thought, we're going to lose our comet, <clears throat> thinking that, oh, well, forget about this. Throw it into the wastebasket. I had no idea at the time that all the work that I'd done about comets and all the poetry I'd studied in the scientific papers, none had ever talked about a recorded incidence of a comet hitting a major planet. Well, we were always worried about comets possibly hitting the Earth someday, and the theory had come out that a comet or an asteroid hit the Earth 65 million years ago, resulting in the destruction of most life forms, including all of the dinosaurs, and about 95% of all species of life on this planet. But no one had actually ever seen the process happen. Suddenly, we were going to see it. On the 18th of July, the largest fragment, fragment called G, collided with Jupiter. This is not a picture with the Hubble Space Telescope. This is a photograph taken from the ground from Australia. Clearly, the brightest thing in the whole picture by far is the impact of 
fragment G, just one of 21 parts of this comet onto Jupiter. It was the most incredible week of my life. And I think of the lives of most of the people who, who, who I know and who were close to me at the time and who still are, many of whom are, still are. This was the largest fragment, and this here was the final fragment. <clears throat> this one came into Jupiter on early in the morning of the 21st of July, 1994. And this was photographed from space, from the Galileo space probe. And what, is, what it caught here is the explosion of the comet as it is about to collide with Jupiter. And you just wonder, you know, it's a good thing that nature was kind to us that year. And nature said, you know what, guys and gals, I'm going to show you, I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm going to teach you what happens when a comet hits a planet. You don't have to worry about it because the planet isn't yours. <laughs> it's just a demonstration. It's going to hit Jupiter. And all I want you guys and gals to do is watch. And we did with everything everything we had. We watched, learned, and thought. What would happen if a comet were to hit the Earth? Say, well, just one of the fragments were to hit the North Pole of the Earth. What would it look like? So we'll take a little computer, we'll write a little program for it, and we come up with this. The Im impact is right at the Earth's North Pole. There is a ring rapidly expanding around it and then already dust is forming in the southern hemisphere of the Earth, in the upper atmosphere. So that even though we are unable to actually witness such a thing, we can certainly imagine the temperature of the atmosphere rising very quickly at the moment of impact, setting fires all over the planet, suddenly dropping again, plummeting again, as we go into an almost an ice age lasting for hundreds of years as the sun is almost blotted out and finally recovering years later and the temperature starts to rise again giving an unprecedented global warming incident episode on the earth. It was a very exciting time. Thank goodness this didn't happen to the earth. Thank goodness this happened with Jupiter, so that the U.S. Congress could say, Gene Shoemaker, come visit us. How do we keep this from happening? And Gene said, not that I want to take any of David's amateur search efforts away from him, but the way to find comets is not his way. It's to use electronic cameras and telescopes. And today, the idea that most comets are found that way, not visually, can really go back to Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9. And just as an aside, I need to tell you that I was so impressed with how the press handled the impacts of Shoemaker-Levy 9. They got everything perfect. No mistakes. <laughs> okay, so they had the comet a little bit bigger than it really was. But all the Jovians are still in touch with us. But once again, it wasn't just the astronomers that were interested. It was the people that were interested in art, poetry, and other things. Here is my wife Wendy's 
cross-stitch that she did of the comet just after discovery with Jupiter over here, something that I always treasure. But just a couple of, uh, just a couple of weeks before the impact of Shoemaker-Levy 9, what am I doing? I'm searching for comets. And I found this one. This was called Comet Takamazawa-Levy. It was found by a Japanese amateur astronomer and me within an hour of each other. And um, so a little aside about that is that shortly after that discovery, Takamazawa got himself a dog. And he didn't really know what to name it. Name it. So he named the dog after me. <laughs> <coughs> there was a dog named David Levy somewhere. <laughs> so I guess you can say that common hunters like me are now going to the dogs. <coughs> and... Uh, up until 2006, I would have said this is the most recent comet that I discovered, but I did tell you about the discovery of, uh, of, of a comet in 2006. This is the confirmation photograph of it. This is Saturn. You don't see the rings there because Saturn number one is so low, seeing so bad you can't see them. And number two, it's a Schmidt camera and it's not designed to show you structure within the planet's rings. But over at the top, if you look carefully, is the comet within half a degree of Saturn. I seem to be fairly adept at finding comets near bright planets. Maybe I should keep on doing that. <coughs> this is not a comet. There isn't a comet in this picture. But if you look at it, it looks like a ring of stars. There is a ring of stars in that picture. We discovered it while searching for comets, and we decided to name it Wendy's Ring. At least I decided to name it that. It's informal, and it's just a ring-shaped structure of stars that probably isn't real in nature. It just happens to be stars that appear from our point of view to look like a ring. <coughs> Everybody is, is doing this. Everybody's enjoying, enjoying learning about comets, learning about things. And I think in the years that have happened, certainly in the 50 years that I've been searching for comets, I have tried to pass on a lot of the excitement and the enthusiasm that I feel for the subject. Everybody, of course, has written about comets now. I think my mom has written about comets. I know that, I know that our dog has written about our, our late Beagle has written about comets, but everyone has written about that. What isn't, what isn't quite so much known, what isn't quite so much known is the, is the enthusiasm that I still have for looking up at the night sky. I think I can say, safely say, that while I have, while I know officially very little about astronomy, very little about comets. I think I can safely say that I know of no one who is more enthusiastic and excited about going out on a clear night and looking for these guys and just seeing what there is out there. To me, every night when the sun goes down, the stars begin to come out, it's a time fraught with suspense. Is there a comet in the sky that hasn't been there before? Is there a nova in the sky 
an exploding star? Is there an aurora borealis? All of these things are exciting and very strange, and we really don't know what they are. <clears throat> I've heard from many people in my life about how they've gotten started in astronomy, and I did want to let you know as we get into the twilight of our presentation that there will be a book signing out, out there after the talk is over, and that one of the books that will be available will be this one, The Man Who Sold the Milky Way. The last time I gave a talk here, I gave a talk about this man, Bart Bach. And I would just like to quote to you two, two passages from this book before we stop. <clears throat> the first one has to do, thank you, the first one has to do when Bart had, was really told that he had to leave Harvard. And he visited Mabel Agassiz, he and his wife Priscilla, went to visit Mabel Agassiz, who was really the person who was donating all kinds of things to the Harvard College Observatory at the time. And uh, Mabel Agassiz received the box one last time just to say goodbye. The box discussed their future plans and philosophy about which they felt very deeply. What are we, asked Priscilla, are we for sale or are we people in love with the Milky Way? Priscilla felt that the new life could be taken two ways. You could say the box are going into exile, or perhaps you could say it is the greatest opportunity in the world. Suddenly, the Lady Bountiful of Harvard Astronomy looked at them intently. Unless I do something, she said, Harvard will forget about you in two weeks. She thought further and then said she would arrange to start a Bach Prize to be given to a Harvard graduate student. Stunned, they graciously thanked Agassiz for her kindness. And Priscilla asked that the prize qualifications be extended to include women students at Radcliffe's, Harvard's sister college at the time. They ended the meeting with drinks. Bach sipped sherry while Aunt Mabel and Priscilla shared orange juice. The other thing has to do with uh, the time that Bart and his wife Priscilla had moved back to Arizona. He took over the, the astronomy department right here. And then as his wife began to get ill, he retired from that and really spent his time taking care of her until she finally died in 1975. Bart decided to donate a chair in her memory at the, uh, at the uh, Desert Museum in the aviary, because Priscilla always complained. He said, no place to rest. You're walking and walking and walking. They said, you're never going to get tired. They need to have a chair here. So he built a bench, the Priscilla Bach bench. The bench became a noble retreat for Bart. In the coming years, he visited it frequently, sometimes alone, more often with friends. Another audience with, 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 with one of his favorite birds, a roadrunner, soon took place. Out from the bushes she came, scampering through, sitting on my shoulder. As he watched the roadrunner, Boxtot wandered back to a far-off place and time. A memory of Priscilla, happy and alert as she fed another group of birds, filled her, his mind. Slowly the image faded, and he imagined once again the exquisite swirls 
of the object in the sky that she loved more than any other, the Eta Carina Nebula. There was just one other thing Bart said, and that was, and that is something that I'll hold, no, I'll tell you now. <coughs> there was one, th one other thing he said, and that was, he advised all his graduate students when they're sitting in an auditorium like this, he said, look, when you're out observing in the night sky, you're taking a photograph, doing a spectroscopy exercise, something with your photometer, and you look at the clock and it says 3 a.m. Stop your photography. Stop your photometer. Whatever it is, stop. Go downstairs one at a time till you get to the front entrance of the observatory. And then go outside and take 20 paces outside. Not 21, not 19, 20 paces and then stop and look up at the night sky just to make sure you're making bloody sense. And as we go on now, I'm going to end with a little bit of music. We started with the moon and I think I'm going to end with something like that as well. Some folks look through telescopes and dream of flying high above the stars. And they say it won't be long till we can all hop on a ship to Mars. Well, I'm just a simple man. There's a lot that I don't know. Just as soon stay home On this side of the moon Things are going my way Your love keeps shining through Even when it rains There's no Sometimes on a clear night We pull up a chair out in the yard And I'm always amazed That the good Lord can make so many stars But I know I'd fill out a place Roaming through the Milky I think I'd rather stay on this side of the moon. Things are going my way. Your love keeps shining through. Even when it rains, there's no
on this side of the moon. <clears throat> Thank you very much. And thank you, David. Since we have the book signing, we will dispense with questions at the moment. And I would ask that you refrain on coming up to David right now because I'd like to get him over to the main lobby where we'll have books for sale and David will sign them. We should have punch and cookies. So please join us in the main lobby for our book signing. We will see you on January the 12th and I'll sign uh, stamp student assignments down here. Thank you, David. Thank you.